Hello, my name is Misha Iman, and you're listening to True Crime Aficionados. Today's episode, I have an interview for you. This interview is with journalist Myra McPherson, and I interviewed Myra because I found and devoured her article titled The Roots of Evil Featured in Vanity Fair, in which Myra interviews Ted Bundy's mother two weeks after he was executed. It's amazing, and it's linked in the show notes for you to read. Please check it out. Myra McPherson was a writer for the New York Times, the Washington Post, a Fulbright recipient, and she's interviewed people such as President Kennedy, Casual, Helen Keller, also Casual. (laughs) She's written extensively on feminism, grief, and dying, and she's covered over five presidential campaigns. And please know that she took the time to uh, have this interview while she was visiting family in Texas, so she did not have her usual audio setup so the audio is a little bit fuzzy i cleaned it up as best i could but it's still amazing please welcome myra mcpherson let's get into it okay so first of all i mean this is probably a very generic question but if anyone just googles you your credentials are a mile long so just (laughs) applause to you for your work in journalism as a woman like thank you for you are so kind I'm in the midst of writing uh, the girl in the ink stained dress which is going to be my memoir about (laughs) battling the males in that era I mean you know it was so ridiculous I covered sports you know, the first sports thing I did was 1960, which is obviously 100 years ago to a lot of your <laughs> listeners. But um, I couldn't get in the press box when I covered the Indianapolis 500, which was the precursor to NASCAR. And I couldn't get in Gasoline Alley to interview the people. So <laughs> it was just ridiculous. And But that didn't stop them from sending dirty, obscene jokes on newspaper, on paper through the barbed wire fence. And so one of my compatriots said, how much does your editor hate you? (laughs) Oh my goodness. But we were fought, we fought all our way through so many things. I mean, the most outrageous was that in 1969, there was a famous, the Miracle Mets won the World Series. They were not expected to. Mm -hmm. And um, they ended up, uh, you know, just surprising everybody and I was there to write about it for the Washington Post and again I couldn't get into the press box and one of these old guys said the next thing you girls are going to want to know is to get into the locker room and I said we don't want to use the urinals we just want to use the typewriters (laughs) (laughs) and then my daughter became a three-time Emmy award-winning producer for ESPN. Amazing. So she was in the locker rooms all the time. And she said at first she would hold up a paper in front of her eyes. And then finally she just said, after a couple of children, she said, oh, little boys, just put your towels back on because they used <laughs> to drop it to try to make the women feel it, you know, that they shouldn't be there. But, you know, people sometimes try to think these are trivial issues when they're not because they were then able by their, uh, you know, renegade attitude, they were then forcing them to go out and have full press conferences with male and female. And so all those steps were not uh, superficial, you know. That's, um, that's crazy. The fact that they would drop their towels, that's sexual harassment. Of course. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, no one thought of it that way. And, and uh, I um, had to, I mean, probably the most, uh, I I would say the most blatant discrimination for women journalists was that we were not allowed in the Washington Press Club until 19, I forget the final date, but even in 1972, when the women's movement was on the rise, when we covered a famous person coming from some other country for Mm -hmm. luncheon there, it was all stag and the women reporters, some of the top Pulitzer Prize winning reporters had to crawl up into the balcony where the hot uh, cameras were and sweat, brown bag their lunches while these guys and lobbyists, as one of them said, all those old fart lobbyists sitting there <laughs> having a second drink of coffee and a cigar. And they're up there from the New York Times, Washington Post, you name it, trying to plan and hear 
and they were not allowed to ask any questions because they couldn't get near them. I mean, it was just rank discrimination. And uh, of course, the Washington Press Club has always been horrible about they. Um, I wrote a book about uh, mm. I have Stone was who was a very iconoclastic journalist, mm-hmm. and he took uh, an African American friend to to lunch. They refused to serve him, and so he wow. he quit. And then years later, when they changed the rules, they blackballed him from coming back because he had been so. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah. So there you know. At what point in your career did you see that shift start to happen? Or did you see that shift of, okay, now I'm not being sexually harassed when I walk into the workplace? Of course, it still occurs today. But when did you really start seeing those doors being opened? Well, that's such a good question because I'm pondering it myself. It was like in increments and you almost don't remember the exact moment you got used to having lesser assignments. You got... And then all of a sudden, you know, I when I was covering um, politics, for example, I covered five presidential campaigns. And it was always very funny because they assigned me, the girl, to George McGovern in 72 because he wasn't going any place. Well, (laughs) then when I then we have a great phrase in journalism called big footing, and it was because of Hedrick Smith, who was a New York Times writer, who had a size 13 uh, uh, shoe size. My gosh. And, and he was up here, up above the rest of us, and all the others would be on the campaign. And when the campaign got interesting, he would come in. And so the phrase was, he bigfooted you. So, <laughs> so oh, man. I got bigfooted when, when the person I was covering began to be more... Uh, uh, known and famous and was winning more. And okay. so not used to that sort of getting lesser roles. And I think it just took forever. I mean, I look now and in my lifetime of writing, even well into the 90s, uh, women were not uh, columnists on the on the uh, op-ed editorial pages. Mm. Uh, women were not prevalent as they are on television uh, covering uh, politics. I mean, the whole, there's been a, a burst of change, but what yeah. we've got is really incremental. And and um, I always say that we had to feel like we were one of the boys and we had to be as good or better so that you got respected. And then once the guys got to respect you, you know, you were able to be able to be one of them. I mean, it's a terrible phrase, but, you know, yeah. I, I mean, way back when, when somebody said I wrote like a man, I was complimented because to me, I thought, that's great because I don't want to yeah. write silly old bullshit debutante parties and crap like that. You know, yeah. and I didn't want to be in the women's department. So I can't answer like a, a lightning bulb knowing that it was better. It just got better and better. And it still is not. You know, they're still not uh, at, at par with the men as far as covering, quote unquote, what are men's issues versus what are not men's issues. You know, they still have that hangover. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I knew I was not going to be a foreign correspondent, which I wanted to be. OK. The, my biggest, biggest uh, disappointment, and I begged and begged and begged to cover the civil rights mm-hmm. in the South. And I was told that they weren't sending any women because it was too dangerous for us women. So I was, I mean, to me, that was the most important. It isn't just event happening in my yeah. entire journalistic career that I would have loved. And, you know, a lot of guys my age really made their bones on that, going down there and covering the civil rights movement, you know, even before Vietnam. So what made you out of, you know, all the myriads of different types of articles or people like I saw that you interviewed Helen Keller and President yeah. Kennedy, which is amazing. What made you settle on Bundy as a topic of interest? Oh, I'm sorry. I'll try to give the short version on this. But or, or long or short. OK, well, basically, I never wanted to be a who, what, when, where, why front page just 
get the facts, ma'am, kind of reporter. I wanted to get in in depth and try to understand and, mm. you know, the big why. Why do people do why, what they do? And that, that goes for politicians. I wrote a book on political marriages and, and the effect mm. of of uh, and the effect of campaigning on uh, families. Almost everything I wrote stemmed from something I wrote for the newspaper. I did a two-part series on Vietnam veterans, which then became the impetus for my book, uh, Long Time Passing, Vietnam and the Haunted Generation. So mm-hmm. I was always learning as I went along, the sort of on-the-job training. And much of it was to try to get behind the scenes to tell the long form view uh, to hopefully uh, eliminate and elucidate what had not been done on a front page story. So that's one of the things I did. And so when I was remarried to the only brain and the only liberal in the Florida Senate, and he was, <laughs> he was the sponsor of the Equal Rights Amendment. Amazing. You know, guy. And so I was living in Miami. And that point, so the Ted Bundy uh, execution hmm. was coming up. And um, so I had heard of the Alpha Chi Omega women, the Chi Omega women that where he had assaulted so many of them so viciously, hmm. and brutally. So I got to interview them for the Post and did this long piece for the Post about what a horrible guy he was and what he had done to them where he had just lost all control. And so then Vanity Fair said, why don't you do a piece on on Bundy? Mm. And they came to me and I said, okay, fine. And that's when I delved into the whole horribleness of this man. And, you know, other articles were more graphic about the stuff he did. I mean, sodomizing with, oh, it's just disgusting and, 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 but I was, again, trying to find out why he did what he did and how mm-hmm. he did what he did and, and his ability to be such a, uh, as I call him, a robot chameleon, the ability to, to you know, and, and I have a feeling, I mean, even then I said what people, why he haunted so many people for so long was that he was the kind of serial killer who was beyond any that I have ever known, the ability to hide with a with this facade of the good guy. I mean, even when he was arrested, you mm-hmm. know, politicians, people who worked with him at a suicide clinic, no one could believe it was really Ted Bundy. And that utterly fascinated me, the idea that he could be such two different people. And I, I interviewed this woman, uh, Dr. Lewis, and she said that she did not think he w- really was a multiple personality. I still think he was. I don't see how you could cover and and uh, uh, I I don't know how you could um, uh, not say he was because hmm. the contrast in what he did. And how he managed the rest of his life. And in fact, uh, the studies on him said that he had absolutely no norms of of, of how to behave from his childhood on. And mm-hmm. that you know, he was a, a really a real psycho to, from the get go. But his ability to hide it was what I think got people. And I said it was because there's this fear that you, your daughter could have dated someone like this. I mean, a good looking guy comes up with a fake cast on their arm and drops their books and says, would you mind helping me to my car on the campus? Who wouldn't do it? My granddaughter would do it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the scary part. He wasn't just doing prostitutes, which is what a lot of them did because it was easy. Yeah. He, was, he was arrogantly going after the the, the, the women who were uh, of a caliber of co-ed, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, you know, he was fascinating finally because he said if the, the FBI made the mistake of not staking out where he had had his uh, kills yep. because he wanted to go back. There were parts of him that were incredibly similar, like decapitating heads, 
you know, painting them after he killed them. I mean, the horrors of what this guy did. It's crazy. And, and that, and talk about crazy. His mother, I, I'm still pissed off at her. I am still pissed off at her. You know, that woman could have helped. She, you know, and I mean, I have always felt when I was starting to do the work, even before I talked to Dr. Lewis, I said, I bet his grandfather did it. I bet it was incest because I started reading everything. Really? About yeah, I started reading about how she had this quote unquote uh, boyfriend that never, no one ever knew mm -hmm. about and how she had never ever traveled anywhere and was almost cloistered in that house. And I thought, who could have come into that and hit and run like like she tried to say he did, you know? Yeah. Well, if you do the math, she claims she got pregnant right after high school. So that would have mm -hmm. been May, June, 1946. And yeah. Ted Bundy was born that November. That's not nine months. And he wasn't premature. Yeah, exactly. No, so it doesn't make that sense. That's an important point. I wasn't even thinking about that, you know? <clears throat> And the person that she supposedly met. And, you know, it could have been the minister, her cuckoo uh, religion or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But you don't know, you know. Yeah. And, and um, if she had ever given a hint, I mean, because clearly grandpa was bonkers. I mean, he was uh, uh, and mean and vicious and abusive, beat up his wife. and. And, you know, I, I always tried to find and you and you fail all the time when you're trying to find the why of something you can you can only just hope uh, and conjecture. But, you know, because we've all known people who probably suffered child abuse of some form and made yeah. it out OK and been and been uh, adopted and felt unwanted. But so the peculiarity of him uh, being as much of a serial killer as he was um still haunts me i i you know i keep wishing that i could have could find the actual factual bad seed thing but the yeah. genetic strain the genetic strain of his grandfather i think would be key i really okay do. i mean also in one part of your article, a family member says when asked, like, do you think that he could be a product of incest, that anything is possible? That That's me. That she had, that's not a quote from anybody else. Oh, that's, that's you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That was with, and I didn't use her name, but I think it was, Aunt, it's either was Aunt Julia or, okay. or the mother, the um, sister of the grandfather, you know. Yeah. The oldest. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah, and, it, and it was just in a, surprised to me the way she said it well anything's possible uh, you know I mean it's such a strange strange family well I keep trying to think that incest being such a taboo I mean that was an era when having a nun a child out of wedlock was bad so yeah. then it, so that they just felt they had to cover up and cover up and you know according to the shrinks who described it Bundy learned at an early age, if you didn't say anything, it didn't happen, you know, and, and he could then, and he was apparently very upset about being called a bastard and, uh, you know, all of that. So uh, I think I just, I really do want to read this one if I can find it. Um, I said Bundy wore the mask even better than most. In other words, I was saying people are serial killers because they can get away with it. They do it. They hide so much, but he said, moving in better circles, picking a higher class of victim, he remains a lasting prototype uh, as experts ponder why and how Bundy grew into a monster who could nonetheless garner friends up until the end. So to me, that's a super fascination. But according to the sister, his sister said, I always thought he was crazy. You know, that was another quote I got. Yeah, Ted's great aunt, Virginia Bristol. Uh, as I said, she was an articulate 80 year old, and she said um, that Cole's own brothers feared him, and that I always thought he was crazy. Mm -hmm. So we are setting that up, I, I hope. 
but um, and now I think she was the one who said anything's possible as well. I believe it was her. Yeah. Um, well, here, the tests that he took, I don't know if you used this earlier, um, showed that, quote, he lacks any core experience of care and nurturance or early emotional sustenance, uh, said the woman who administered the battery of tests for Dr. Lewis. Severe rejection experiences have seriously warped his personality development and led to deep denial or repression of any basic needs for affection. Severe early deprivation has led to a poor ability to relate to or understand other people. And then, yeah. you know, when we started to try to say, well, hey, other people have had similar backgrounds, at least the adoption and the not, and it said that Bundy belongs to a group who not only feel rejected, but feel blamed for having been born. Yep. And, you know, but the FBI guy said, what I thought was fascinating, he said, forget trying to uh, examine the why, because we're doing it from an ordinary person's perspective. At least I think we're ordinary. <laughs> okay. But, you know, uh, and, and they just aren't on the same wavelength. They do think differently. I mean, his mother is, you know, showing me his Boy Scout uniform. At that time, he was running around peeking in windows and yeah. masturbating and all kinds of stuff. You know, <laughs> what was that experience like of interviewing Louise Bundy? Well, you know, I tried to write that as much as I could. And I kept saying she was, uh, you know, this denial in this placid, no expression, you know, talk about a flat affect as they do about mm -hmm. people who are, who do not emote. And the whole, but she was receptive. And of course she had had interviews earlier, but we have to remember this is two weeks after he's executed and she is acting like nothing happened. And the way I got to her was the priest or not the priest, but the minister that is quoted in my article way down. I can't remember his name. And I said, I wanted to interview her. And he said, she's not giving any interviews. And then he called back and said that he thought I was trustworthy. I said, mm -hmm. I tried to be honest. I said, I'm trying to find out why Bundy did the things he did. Because by then she couldn't hide. But, you know, she was still not in such denial. Mm -hmm. And and it was eerie. I mean, this little man who sat behind her just sort of smiling and not saying anything. And, you know, the his sibling, you know, his half siblings uh, all have changed their names. Wow. From Bundy. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And, you know, um, I just it, it was like it was so strange. It was like being with a. Uh, a person who gave off no vibes of anything and not even anger. You know, when I raised the question about her grandfather, I did that on the phone, but uh, uh, not her, but Ted's grandfather mm -hmm. being, being the father. I was, oh, no. I mean, no, that couldn't have, that wasn't right. I mean, that's the tone. It wasn't, <laughs> you bitch, you know, leave me alone, you know. I'm, she was never angry at me. She was never, she, she wasn't effusive. She was just there. Wow. And I think to me, the thing that got me most of everything about her, I mean, the most cheering, chilling thing for me was when she was standing there talking to me and pointed to her dining room table. And I just want to read it because I think it says it better than I can. Uh, the dining room table's lace cloth on it are 400 condolences cards, some written in revulsion to the cheering dance of death that had occurred. Bundy has methodically arranged the cards in rubber banded piles of 50 
Some are addressed simply to Louise Bundy, Ted's mother, Tacoma, Washington. Quote, I must write the postmaster and thank him for sending them, she murmurs. They're not obliged to do that. The detachment seems eerie. I would add very eerie. Looking over the cards from stranger, she almost trills. We've made quite a few new friends. What? Just her son was just executed. No tears, no bereavement, no grief. No, not even, you know, when I said at one point, uh, you think that it might have been better to have left him for adoption. And, and she said, maybe or probably, you know, not, you know, not yeah. probably, but I said, would you felt badly if you left him for adoption? It was probably no, there was no connect. I mean, you talk about who's the crazy person here. I, I, and these people who who were charmed by her, you know, I mean, some of the people worked with him and she was considered, you know, and then that smarmy, I love you, mom. And, and her response at the end for television. I mean, yeah. you know, so it was all an act. I think uh, I would love to have been able to, just be a fly on the wall and hang out with her <laughs> without her knowing I was there because she she really was a, a case. Uh, and, you know, I kept trying to put myself in her place. I mean, that's the hardest thing about being a writer. You don't want to want being kind of an arrogant curbstone Freud. You know, I, yeah. know, I know all this. Yeah. But you, but you do have to try to analyze. And, I, you know. I did as much as I could without flat out saying I thought she was bonkers. And then I thought she must have not been very warm to him. You know, I mean, all these studies, but it's hard to find out when somebody isn't like wanting to tell you anything. Yeah. You know? What was your impression of his stepfather? Oh, he was a non-entity. Really? He just sat there, just sat there. Didn't didn't respond, didn't smile. I kept trying to think, well, they've been interviewed before. Maybe their their lack of reaction is just because others have brought up some of these questions. Yeah. But I but I I had no no ability to find that out, you know. Mm. And uh, sometimes people just can their quotes tell everything and, <laughs> and, 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 and not much else. I mean, yeah. you know. That business with the cards still just, I remember just getting shivers about that. You know, how could a mother not only have them, but assemble them as if they were trophies? Talk about trophies. Yeah. <laughs> Her son kept enough trophies. <laughs> so anyway, that was my only crime venture, except I did have an interesting couple of murders that I covered days. One was a, a woman who had killed her father with her boyfriend in tow and carved her initial on his back. Oh. And, uh, and um, I, I couldn't interview her, but I was allowed to interview her boyfriend. And there was a movie way, way back called The Night of the Hunter in which Robert Mitchum had tattooed on his fingers, L-O-V-E on one hand and H-A-T-E on the other, love and hate. Okay. And and, it, and and he was this wacko preacher who was fighting love would win or hate would win and <laughs> hate would win, he would kill. You know, I mean, it was really, it was a very scary movie that we all loved. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I'm interviewing this guy and I look down and he's got love and hate tattooed on his fingers. The, the one, the boyfriend of the girl who murdered the father mm -hmm. in Detroit. And so I was in with him in this cell and the cop was, you talk about sexual harassment. Uh, mm. he, he says, well, I think you'll enjoy your time in here. And he said, enjoy your interview. And he locked me in the door with this guy. What? To, you know, yeah. Just to scare me. I was in his cell with a door shut and locked. And and so then when I went out, I said, well, the, I was trying to find the reason for the daughter's uh, behavior. And 
and especially carving her initials on his back. And he said, and I said, well, she said that she had been sexually abused by her father repeatedly for Mm -hmm. many years and hit the cop said, oh, that old story. That's what they all say. Gross. So that was my one murder. (laughs) And then another one was a terrible story in, uh, in the, in Washington when I first came to Washington at the Washington Star. And it's still known. It was at a time when um, child killers were not that prevalent. And there was a young little seven-year-old boy. And the story just made page one and et cetera. And my editor said, go to the family and interview the family and be there when the mother comes in with the priest who's going to tell her that the son is dead. Oh, my gosh. And I said, well, it's one of those horrible TV kind of how do you feel kind of questions. Like a gotcha moment. Yes. And I said, um, I didn't say anything because I thought for sure no one was going to let me in the house. I just felt positive. I could just say, well, they wouldn't let me in. Right. And, And so the weirdness is there was an aunt there. And she was just basking in the press of it. Oh, my goodness. The Washington Star is coming to interview the family. So she let me in. And there was a teenage girl and a, and a, and a baby, you know, and I helped change diapers. I washed the dishes. I did everything. And except leave. Right. And so and so she the mother comes in and she goes in the bedroom and she is told and she starts screaming and banging on the wall i got out of there and i got back to the paper and i had to write this story and i i couldn't write it and so the editor these were the good old days the editors walked in got the drawer opened the drawer got out a bottle of gin and said drink this and and then write the goddamn story so Gosh. So I did. And I wrote and I was so drunk that I ended up saying, if I get one more damn assignment like this, I am quitting. I couldn't spell quitting. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So so I didn't get too many of those. (laughs) But, um, you know, it's always fascinating. People have always fascinated me. I really wish in some way I had studied psychology more because I think it mm-hmm. would go hand in hand with, you know, I mean, you're the same way. I can tell you want to find out what makes people tick. It's, it's, it, yeah. in, it's in your genetic strain, I think. And uh, <laughs> In fact, my last book, it's what I think you might like. It's, um, Ooh, okay. it's called The Scarlet Sisters. Sex, suffrage, and scandal in the Gilded Age. And um, the way I got started with that is that everybody was talking about Hillary Clinton maybe being president and Obama being vice president. And I read this tiny squib in a newspaper that said it's been done before. Victoria Woodhull ran with Frederick Douglass. And that is where I got the impetus. And then I started reading about her wonderful, sassy, avant-garde sister, Kenny. And 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 they just outdid every they were raging feminists at a time when no one even knew the phrase. I mean, they were the first women stockbrokers in the world in 1870, bankrolled by Tenney's lover, Cornelius Vanderbilt, the richest man in America. And that was not repeated. Stock women stockbrokers for a hundred years, not till 1969. And then Victoria decides she's gonna run for president and she and uh, and, you know, that was really kind of ancillary to the real story, because the real story was the way they fought for women's rights in every conceivable way. In fact, they fought with uh, Susan B. Anthony and, and said that she uh, was uh, retrograde because all she wanted was she was driven to get the vote. And they said, why should we get the vote if all we do is elect white corrupt males you know we need to vote ourselves and they Mm -hmm. and and we need uh to fight for economic and freedom and their free love which got construed all different ways was basically to say you know uh, change reform the divorce laws women were 
chattel. Women couldn't vote for anything. They couldn't buy anything. They couldn't Mm -hmm. live lives of their own. And that went all up and down the strata. And so they were really amazing. They were for co-ed sex education. I mean, we're still fighting that. They were Mm -hmm. for equal pay for equal work. And guess what? We still don't. Still fighting it. Yeah. Penny was the only woman and a white woman, uh, honorary colonel of the only black regiment in during the resur- during that horrible reconstruction era when the KKK got its start and it was totally violent, violent uh, racism. And when she went off with them, the man who owned the hotel said, you'll all be evicted. And she went off with them to a, a meeting. She was, I mean, I was just always amazed by her. Yeah. It was much more than the Frederick Douglass because he was never even, he never even joined up. He just, yeah, they wanted him, but he didn't want to get involved. But she mm-hmm. absolutely uh, was unbelievably egalitarian and able to have such a point of view. And they came from really trashy, trashy background. And the father who, uh, you know, they he'd put them to work. She put them to work at 12 as a fake uh, a fortune teller, <laughs> thirteen hours a day. Oh my gosh! And what? and and any money she got went to him. I mean, they. I don't know how they serve. You talk about people can survive. They are amazing. Yeah. And then after they blew the whistle on Henry Ward Beecher, who was the main preacher of America, the most famous man mm-hmm. in America at the time. Yeah, his adulterous affairs. They. They were imprisoned. They went to jail. They, uh, you know, and then when they came out of jail, the the whole federal uh, society was so down on these women that mm-hmm. they ended up trashing their printing presses. They had a, a weekly that they that just got wrecked. They had no money, so they said, you know, fuck it. If if this is the way everybody's going to treat us, we're going to England, and they. They got money from Vanderbilt's son. Don't it's you have to read the book to find out why. And anyway, they got <laughs> over there and they married two of the richest men in England. There you go. And lived happily ever after. And Tenney, at the age of 64, was still giving speeches to 7,000 people at a time. She came wow. back to the United States and the suffragettes then in the 1910, uh, I think it was, ended up taking a, a tugboat out to the Queen Mary to meet her and bring her in. And she took them all to see the cells where they used to, where they had them. And, 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 you know, it was progress all along the way. She said, you know, the things we did then would never have gotten us in jail now. Gosh. And so, so, I mean, I just loved finding out all about them and who they were. Okay. That's, I mean, that sounds amazing. Can you just say that the name of your book one more time? Oh, it's called The Scarlet Sisters, Sex, Suffrage, and Scandal in the Gilded Age. And I, I will tell you just a little bit about Helen Keller, because that was the most Please. amazing moment. I, you know, as a young, young reporter, had come to Washington and Kennedy was in office. And I did a lot of interviews with Kennedy and the family, too. Um, but uh, she was, I don't know, probably only 68. You know, it sounds like forever, but uh, so, and this was 1960 or 61 and probably 61 or 62. And she was brought in by the Lions Club, which was the club that gets money for blind people, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it's an organization. And she sat with JFK and he was so wonderful. He just bent over and their knees touched. It was like he needed to feel her because she could not see, could not hear. I mean, when you think of this miraculous woman and she asked him about Carolyn and about her being in the White House. And then afterwards, I met her and the woman with her was not Annie Sullivan, the original. It was another woman uh, with her. Hmm. And she put 
my uh, she she asked my name and I said Myra McPherson and she took her hand and put it in Helen uh, Keller's palm and tapped out my name and she came this close she said how are you instead of McPherson and uh, she had this radiant look. I thought, I guess, see no evil, hear no evil. Because mm. she just looked so beatific. And she was tall and she was, uh, you know, she was very much a leftist in her politics and, and very, yeah. very strong uh, socialist. And, uh, the, and then what got me were all of these Lions Club guys trying to get in the pictures, trying to get, you know, and, and, and wanting to talk to me about their program. And I said, look, I'm just interested in her. Leave me the <laughs> fuck alone, you know. And so, yes. Yeah. So that was uh, mesmerizing, still is. I wish I'd had a picture take with her. You know, it would have been so lovely to have. Um, Another question, circling back to um, you covering the case of a you know a child who was killed. I also talk about in the podcast that little girl who lived around the corner from Ted Bundy, Anne Marie Burr. She was eight years old yeah. and went missing. Do you think he had something to do with her disappearance, possibly her possible murder? That's a fascinating part. I try. I could. I got absolutely nowhere trying to find out anything about it. Yeah, and if, there weren't even parents around that you could talk to about it by the time mm. by the time I was you know 1989 you know when I got around to talking yeah. and doing something about it but it's 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 possible you know uh, what I kept finding was that no one could figure out when he first his first kill and mm -hmm. and, and they uh, they put a lot of credence on the fact that he had been spurned by this co-ed and, yeah, and who looks a lot like the women that he killed, and um, I'm not so sure that just wasn't the style. I mean, everybody was wearing their hair long and part, uh, and you know, it's all of a piece. You can say that, you can say his mother, you can say the possibility of the grandfather, but no one has ever been able to put it all together. The the one thing that um, Dr. Lewis finally got, I mean, she spent hours with him and never got him past the facade, uh, was that he finally said that from the very, very, very early age, he was fascinated by murders and deaths and violence. Yeah. And of course, sticking the knives. In. <laughs> that story is just the most unbelievable story. Sticking it's the, the craziest story. <laughs> oh, Hi there, Grant, my auntie. How about a few knives? You know, <laughs> and then why grinning. did no one stop him? And then grinning. And she said she went and took the knives back to the kitchen. And she said it was always strange to her that no one said anything about it. I mean, that's her quote. You know, it was like it's insane. Yeah. It's the whole insane. family kind of colluded in, in this kind of thing. I wanted to ask you. Uh, why this is coming up again is because he was so unique in his character and his ability to hide to such a degree. I mean, you read about these other people who are serial killers, and they're just really nothing like Bundy. I haven't found yeah. enough. Have you? I think I, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely read a lot about <laughs> serial yeah. killers, probably far too much than I should. But with Bundy specifically, I think it's because he was a law student, which I kept reading in so many books yeah. was, I can't believe it because he's a law student versus a lot of other serial killers. Like, um, I don't know, Richard Ramirez was just like, you know, a drug addict, like drifter wandering around. Or yes. John Wayne Gacy was just like a clown and like overweight, unattractive. But yes. Ted Bundy was to some people, I don't consider him like attractive. He was working, like rubbing elbows with governors. And I think because so many people saw themselves in him or aspired to That's be what like I was him saying. or date him, it was this rejection of like, well, I identify with him. So it can't be possible because 
that means that someone in my circle could be a serial killer or I could like it was just this rejection of the self yeah and like projection you mean that's the reason why they persisted in thinking that he was yeah and then why he was so successful I think it's yeah because people just rejected the idea of like oh well there's no way he's a serial killer because well he's a he's a law student he's affluent he has money and and he and I said he wore the guys so well I mean it wasn't like you could see him one day going wacko or being Mm -hmm. weird or you know and 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 I don't know that any I have not found any others because I was looking at at the time and I didn't know if you'd found anybody more recent but you're 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 citing the ones that I knew and they were not like him but you know you you probably uh, I don't know if you know this part of him but when when he escaped from prison, prison one time, he jumped out and escaped early on. Yeah. And everybody was yelling, free Ted Bundy. I mean, they just thought he was a hoax because no one could imagine that he could do the horrible things he did. You know, yeah. I still find it hard. He had to be such a split personality that you could be that way and that way. I just don't see the connect. Well, Dr. Lewis has a new HBO special that I think came out in 2020 called um, Crazy Not Insane. And it's where she kind of discovers or comes to the conclusion he maybe had dissociative identity disorder. So not multiple personality, but he was able to dissociate so much Mm -hmm. that it was just it wasn't an alternate personality, but it was so separated from his normal facade that he could do one murder and then go out to eat burgers with his girlfriend and her daughter. Well, he, uh, she, um, I kept pushing her and pushing her in the <laughs> interview. And she finally said, no, but he came awfully close. She, mm-hmm. at that point. I have a funny story about that interview. She, <laughs> she, I came in and I had my tape recorder in my purse. So she said, I don't want, I don't want any tape recorder. And I thought, holy shit, I cannot get what I want. But, you know, in the old days, before we used them a lot, we learned to take sort of a bastard shorthand, a bastardized shorthand. Mm-hmm. You know, you, and so I kind of did all that. And after I got through, I looked at it and some of it was just hopeless. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my God. And I opened my purse and my tape recorder had been running all that time. <laughs> so, yes. So I didn't cheat, but I did cheat. I mean, and so then. It was so amazing when I wrote the piece, she called me and said, you got so much so right. And she said, <laughs> we should do a book together. And we were talking oh about my gosh. Book at the point. And I never told her that the reason it was so accurate was that the tape recorder was running. You know, and I thought, you know, is this a state, is New York a state where you both have to agree or, or if one agrees? Because... I, <laughs> So anyway, that was why I got her better than maybe she thought I would get it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so also in terms of Ted Bundy's grandfather potentially also being his father, if he did maybe sexually assault his daughter, there are some rumors and kind of some like deep Ted Bundy threads, corners of the internet that maybe he also sexually assaulted Ted Bundy in the garage, which maybe like also child abuse can also lead to these you know really intense antisocial personality disorders like psychopathy and murder well you know i i thought of that just slightly not enough but uh, at the time because i was trying to pull all those aspects together and no one was letting on that the grandfather was his father so i so i just had to keep pushing that i tried it every way yeah. sunday to get an answer i felt confident that he was don't ask me why i just looked at all the pieces of the puzzle and Mm -hmm. uh what was interesting is that some of the people commented that he was devastated when she took him away from the one uh, father figure he knew which was his grandfather Mm -hmm. so there could have been a real weirdo bond with him the interesting thing is unlike almost all serial killers that I read at the time, he was able to have normal sex with two or three girlfriends, 
which usually yeah, just isn't few. the case at all. But he did follow the pattern of drinking before he went on his sprees and mm-hmm. and uh, the violence and the uh, that's the hardest part. Yeah, it's really horrible. Yeah, I mean, that whole business of wanting to to study his brain and how no one would allow it. That's a disservice to science. And I think that his mother was a great disservice to science if she could have at least told everybody who the father was. Yeah. Do you think through now, um, like DNA testing and familial testing, Mm -hmm. that there might be some way we could find out who his father, like narrow it down? Well, you know, I really wonder because 89 was before it began, that whole craze began about always being able to find anything. And I often wondered if there was anything left over of him, but he was cremated, I think. Yeah, he was. And, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I guess, I don't know if you could find any DNA by being able to exhume him. I mean, that would be fascinating if anybody could do that. Yeah. Maybe something, a crime scene, like a semen stain or something. Or I mean, that's not. Well, I enough. even thought of some of the women at, at uh, in Florida, the Chi Omega house, where, mm-hmm. where oh, there was this, some of them who told me the story had not been attacked, but there was one or two that had who survived. And, you know, in, today there would be a real. Uh, awakening of that. I mean, the way they identified him was the bite on the buttocks of one of the yeah. women, and that was able to do it, uh, the teeth analysis, as gory as that was. But yeah, she died, I think, and the one or two who'd lived, I don't know how you could match the DNA today. I just have no idea. Um, but it's a good question. Um. Well, I know now there's a huge kind of kerfuffle in the crime scene world of whether dental analysis is still valid to using oh, courts. Really? Mm-hmm. Like some courts aren't using it anymore. So it's kind of oh. a state by state. Yeah. Which I would, I mean, I don't know. I would think dental impressions, if you can really match a set of teeth. Absolutely. It could, I think I've always thought that was one of the pre-DNA. Yeah. That, that was the only way. You know. Yeah, but there are some courts now that aren't using dental impressions. What, what is your reasoning? That it's not accurate enough. <laughs> well, if you have a buck tooth, <laughs> you have a snaggle tooth here. You know, <laughs> I mean, my, my bottom teeth, no one, I can guarantee no one has the crooked bottom teeth <laughs> I have. <laughs> it's, it's just, I mean, maybe if you used dental impressions with other evidence as well but to completely just eliminate it yeah. would Ted Bundy have been convicted well that's fascinating because he I think when they got him driving in the car you know and it was just whatever the uh I won't I'm almost blanking what was it with the car that he was driving was he speeding or whatever no he was driving erratically because he was like nodding off falling asleep yeah just driving erratically, trying to leave the state and driving erratically. <laughs> Stupid. Yeah. And and so by then he was so wasted and so uh, out of it that they were able to arrest him. And then you're right, though. I mean, they did not arrest him for murder. So we don't know if the if they hadn't had the DNA for the teeth. Yeah. It's, well, for the Kim, that was for the Chai Omega case, but for the Kimberly Leach trial, he also was sentenced and executed for that. Um, and they, it was like a lot of fibers from her sweater that she had and her purse that they yeah. matched. So he probably still would have been executed, but I just wonder if there would have been justice yeah. in that case because that was the, you know, what they had. Yeah. Have you studied any more current? serial killers because when i wrote the article it said that they were on the rise and then i read recently that maybe they're not on the rise so i, I don't know what's happened in the 30 years since then you know <laughs> well i think it's it's kind of 
they are on the rise, but not as much as like the crazy 70s boom. And I think mm-hmm. probably because of technology, of GPS tracking, of so many cameras around, it's a lot harder yes. for people to be as successful to have these like. Th- and the one thing that the, the Ted Bundy case uh, happened to help was that they were not doing state by state checks yeah. of people with this utterly amazing to me and of course they put that in place after ted bundy because he was able to go you know from tacoma washington Mm -hmm. to florida back and forth and never get detected because no one was following up it's really scary but there has have you studied the f have have the fbi people kept their going because the the uh facility that they had for this was just beginning it's gone. And I wanted to say done more. It's, it's gone. gone. I looked it up because in the book, The River Man, written by Dr. Robert Keppel, he mentions that, the yeah. BICAP. And it dismantled, it fell apart because the FBI wanted to be, it was their program obviously in charge and the local police departments uh-huh. kept butting heads with the FBI. And there was this difficulty in transferring all their information of like, okay, here, I've worked, you know, five years on this case. Let me just hand it over to this FBI. So it was a power struggle and they didn't want to lose credit for solving the crime. Uh So it it fell apart. That that's terrible. Ego made it fall apart. Yeah. I I mean, I, that was to me, I thought that was progress and that they would be able to really do something positive. And I just assumed it was still going, you know, I've been writing other things and I haven't followed it. Like you're you're (laughs) living, breathing expert on crime. It's, I don't, I mean, it just happened. One day I woke up and I was like, I need to just read more and more and more about this. It's. (laughs) Well, does any of it just turn you off? I mean, some of the grisly stuff really bothers me. Yeah. Jeffrey Dahmer, I made the, so I occasionally I'll read something and be like, what? That doesn't make sense that, you know, like for example, the Black Dahlia famous case that her, her mutilated body was on the front page. And I was like, wait, that doesn't make, so I Googled that image. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's hor. It's horrible. It's a horrible thing to see. Yes. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer, that his crime scene photos still like it's horrible. It's horrible. I haven't even looked at it. I would not recommend well, who, it. And, and they never caught the, the Black Dahlia murder. No, they, they never did. He he or she probably... He. They had this supposition that it was some doctor, which makes sense. I mean... The, the way he killed yeah him. it's um it's 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 very interesting <laughs> i think going back to your question about more recent serial killers there was one in my town montclair new jersey who his trial was he was sentenced last year where he was targeting sex workers and he was meeting up with them on dating apps and then the agreement would be sex for money and then he would brutally rape and kill them and he like set one of them on fire in a house like so that's recent in oh 20, he killed that we know of three women one of the women survived like thankfully she escaped and helped lead the police to catch him after being harassed by the police for being a sex worker and not being taken seriously um another person is do you remember that man samuel little they just caught he he died in prison I believe he died uh-huh. he died recently, but he is theorized to have killed over a hundred women. And he has photographic memory where he was drawing their faces in the crime scenes to a T. And then the police oh, would wow, go there and then find yeah, Samuel Little. You would like to look into him. Yeah. L I T T L Yeah, Samuel Little. And he I think he recently just passed in prison before he was able to actually go fully to trial. His cases were later, I believe like eighties. And then he was dormant and then got caught. Um, and then another recent serial killer, Israel Keys, who he took his own life in prison. But he, talk about traveling for his kill. He would travel to different states in America, bury mm-hmm. kill kits in these states with like duct tape, um, you know, blindfolds, like knives, all this crazy nonsense, bury them and then just travel every every couple of months, every couple. Bury them alive? No, he would go and get his kill kits and then abduct people, torture them, kill them, and then just flee. And then no one would ever know it was him because one would pop up in Arizona and then Texas and then 
Maine. Um, Israel Keys was recently, and they're still trying to identify some of his victims as well. Well, that is amazing. You know, I mean, it is <laughs> such a no, too much horrifying experience. It's just, you know, I don't know how you sleep at night. I think I would be having nightmares. I, speaking of having nightmares, <laughs> we were all basket cases when we went up to to for the um, execution of Bundy. Did you go? I'm, oh, you yeah, were there? there. Yeah, but I wasn't inside. I was I was supposed to be one of the pool reporters. And I said, I do not want to be a pool reporter. Uh, you know, I, I just, but I went up and my friend David Vondrelli, who later became a reporter at the Post, but he was at the Miami Herald and I was writing for the Post. And we went up in this, I said, the aptly named town of Stark, Florida. And <laughs> we, we were both absolutely, I mean, I, I called him from my bedroom in this no-tell motel. I mean, it was really one of the scuzziest hotels. Ooh. And I said, hi, David, I'm here. And he said, hi. And I said, how are you, how are you feeling? And he said, I'm okay. I said, do you want a little company? <laughs> I was really psyched. I felt like Bundy was going to bust out of there and attack us. I was so antsy. And he always laughs. And he wrote this book about um, the people on death row. And he quoted, I think he quoted me by name of saying that I was suggesting that I was going to go back to my room and put the bureau in front of the door so that he couldn't come in. <laughs> and it sounds so crazy. But he had that effect on on the people who got to study his cases and those people who yeah. spoke about this kind of weird smell in his flashing eyes and how it how frightening yeah, what was it was. His eyes? And Tina Brown, who was the editor of Vanity Fair, kept saying, well, describe the smell. I said, well, I can't. I mean, I asked them and they <laughs> say it was just a smell. I said, was it metallic? Does it no. Yeah. But no one, and it wasn't like odor, body odor. It was just some chemical kind of smell that they had. And there's no way I could describe it because no one could describe it to me. And I, you know, and I never met it. But the story I did for the post um, was standing outside and getting the two sides of the argument the no death penalty people and the fry bundy people and they were all out there <laughs> God. fighting with each other and candlelight vigils at dawn and so i did this whole what? scene and then the washington post didn't want to run it because we had an editor who was quite a prudent he had read the chi omega story and he said enough is enough about this man and so that story never ran so that's when I Wow. When when Vanity Fair came, I said, great. And I think I used a little bit about, but not a lot about that because everything else evolved. But that scene still sticks in my mind about the various fights over him. And, you know, and the, the, the it was like a circus. It was almost like when you read the stories about the guillotine and people would be they bring their children to watch, you know, I mean, it was just, it was a, I was just talking about that with my boyfriend today of like public executions oh, are oh, crazy. Unbelievable. And the, the crazy. of the unbelievable wildness of human torture and human pain and human everything. We've had a very rocky history when it comes to caring for people. Yeah, 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 humans. And I mean, I Epstein. I still wonder whether he offed himself or whether somebody killed him. You know, the um, Trump guy who was, I think, sex trafficking. It's hard to tell whether it was just for his own personal pleasure, but he should have really been uh, still prey. That's the hardest part uh, of people to recognize, much more than males are. You know, how many, yeah. how, many yeah. how many women serial killers have there been? There was that one woman, the one woman that. Um, Eileen Warnos. Yeah, she was a sex worker. She killed seven of her male clients. Oh, I thought it was only three. The movie may be seven. Just, uh, <laughs> the movie may have just, yeah. I kept thinking three, but that could have been the movie. 
She, well, in court, she said that she only killed the men that tried to either rob her or beat her to, or, you know, sexually assault her as a sex worker. I see. So she was, she was saying it was self-defense. Like she was being a sex worker, yes. you know, doing her job. And these men tried to like, you know, have sex with her without paying and or sexually abuse her. So yeah. she killed them. That's what she said. Okay. She's also, you know, the only one able to tell that side of the story because they're dead. So. <laughs> I had no idea she'd gotten up to seven. That's interesting. Seven. Wow. That we know of. Always have to say that we know of because she? Um, she was executed in, of course, Florida yes. in 2002. Florida. <laughs> Good old Florida. Oh, it's gotten so um, bad. Oh, jeez. <laughs> talk all we want anyway take care and good luck with your thank program, you so much and I'll talk to you soon. okay thank you if, thank if you, you thank you for anything just holler and i'll if you have any more questions <laughs> okay i appreciate that be well okay. thank you so much bye 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 Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. You can find in the show notes a link to Myra's article, The Roots of Evil. And you can also find a link to Myra's website where you can check out some of her other works and her book that she discussed. If you would like to stay in touch, you can email me at truecrimeaficionados at gmail.com. You can check out the Instagram at truecrimeaficionados. And if you want some fun content, you can find me at TikTok at Misha Iman. Please rate, review, subscribe, share all that jazz. And tune in next week for episode nine, where Ted Bundy travels to Colorado. And he continues to be a piece of shit because, well, Ted Bundy. (laughs) Thank you so much. And remember, keep your head on the swivel. See you next week. Bye.